0: So I, I know it's, uh, it's not March or April, and many of us are not in our pastels, but um, I just want to remind you that this morning is just as much Easter uh, Sunday as will be uh, coming up shortly because the tomb is empty this morning. And, and if the tomb is empty this morning, then, then that evokes an, a, a very immediate response from all of us in Christ. Uh, people have been telling me all my life to settle down or to calm down or to be something that I'm not. But but when you believe that the tomb is empty, that resurrection power is here and is not I don't know any like I don't know how to be anyone else except passionate about the worship of the most high. So I just want to level set. So some of you, you know, there may be a moment today where you're just like you need to settle down. And I would just say, if he's alive, why would we? Why would any of you? Your passion, your zeal, it doesn't need to look like mine. But Romans 12 says never be lacking in it. And so we have a reason today to hunker down in that truth and reality. One of the things to me that always brings me to this place of worship is remembering our global family. Anytime I'm with uh, an American church like this, I start thinking about some of my global brothers and sisters that don't have this, that this morning are waking up in villages or tribes or families where they're the only believer and they're just as much part of our family as all of us are, amen? It causes us though then to take a moment and not take for granted what God has graced us with. This is a grace to be here, It's a grace. It's not something you've earned. It's not something you've merited. It is a massive grace. And I'll take one step further. God has given you all a very specific grace to be a part of this local expression where God is moving so mightily at heights. I mean, he is moving. He is active. It's visible. And again, in the village where there's only one believer, he is no less active. But you all have received this grace. Can we just celebrate what God's doing here at heights. I mean, come on. it's Awesome. It's awesome. And, and listen, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Okay. So, so the fact that you guys are, are led by godly men, such as this, broken men, who are who are gonna fail you, but men who are zealous about Christ, what a grace that is. So here's my encouragement. Yeah, maybe a gift card, yeah, maybe a car wash, yeah, like that's fine. But the thing you could do that would be most encouraging to them in Pastor Appreciation Month is to take the time and intentionality. To write an email, a text, a letter. Go old school. Like, like write something up on, a, up on a scroll, man, and send it to them describing what God has done in your, in your life recently. How, how you've been growing in Christ here. In the days where it's really, really hard to be in ministry. This is my 25th year of vocational ministry. In the days where it's really, really hard, those letters and texts will be tremendous reminders that it's worth it and that he's worthy. So I'm, I'm challenging you. Like, I would love to see their inboxes get flooded today, tomorrow, the next day, just with notes of encouragement about he, how he is rolling. So, so with all that said, uh, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to charge hell this morning. You guys ready to go? Okay. Listen, man, there, no weapon formed against us shall prosper, and it's because of an empty tomb. But there is a problem. There is an issue all around us. Why does American Christianity look so much like American culture. If everything we just said is true, if he's worthy of more worship, if the tomb is empty, like why is there almost no difference by and large? I'm not saying in pockets because there's certainly, certainly pockets where God is moving. I'm just saying it seems like the line between who's actually following Christ and who's not has gotten muddied and blurred. And so why does this Happened. I grew up in a setting where it's probably best described as Jesus funerals. Uh, we would show up and uh, we sang like Jesus was dead and we preached like Jesus was dead and, and uh, we responded like Jesus was dead. Like even when we had a chance to say amen, it was very faint and quiet, sobered. Um, I, I grew up thinking that, man, I, I, guess like this is, I, guess, I guess this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. You, you, have, you have no joy, no hope. You have uh, no sustenance in the truth of the gospel. Uh, but then God started to shift my perspective when I read his word. It turned out if I, if I let the church dictate my experience of God instead of God, it turns out the bar was going to get really lowered. But, but, but then the word started to drive my perspective of who God is. And so what I want to do is I want to answer this question. Why does American Christianity look so much like American culture by walking through the bad news and the good news of the gospel. We're going to answer the question. So first, let's look at the bad news. And some of you are like, gee, thanks. Well, well hold on a second. There is no good news without the bad news. Like there, there's no recognition of grace unless there's understanding of what you deserve. And, and I'll just speak for myself. The moment I even just for a second begin to understand what I deserve. Oh, it makes me a worshiper, not an attender. It makes me a worshiper, not a bystander. That's the issue today. It's not sitting in that nice, comfortable chair. The issue is worship, friends. Are we together? All right, I need to move on. Time is short. Here we go. For we ourselves were once foolish. And some of you who are married, you're like, no, that's, you're, that's still you. Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second, okay. Uh, before Christ, this is, this is everyone. And if you are yet to, to be... Uh, if you're yet to have a relationship with Jesus and you're here, first of all, we're thankful that you are, but you're going to see a, a, really, uh, a, a really strong explanation of your current standing. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another uh, and so some uh, folks, they look at children and they're like, man, look at those nice, in they are absolutely not nice and innocent. And for those who are parents or grandparents, you've been a, around kids at all. Like the moment they start talking, you realize the sin nature. You know, it's, it's in us all. We, we all once were that way. And, and and I know we don't use this language with our children. Like, like we don't say, hey, listen, actually, you're a child of wrath until you turn to Christ. But... But we need to start understanding the depths of sin. This is who we used to be. All right, so if Titus 3 wasn't enough, no problem, here's Ephesians 2. They used to be us. And you were, what's the word? Dead Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, once, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's only two leaders. And before Jesus... We were following Satan. 1 John says we were sons of the devil. That's that's who we are. Again, this this language seems abrasive. Friends, listen, if it's in the word, though maybe hard to hear and abrasive, it doesn't make it less true. And we need to speak the truth, friends. So we were dead uh, following Satan. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out then, that passion led to evidence of our life. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So before Christ, we were the beholders of God's wrath. We deserved it. One infraction against a holy God deserves the fullness of God's wrath. And without the protection of Christ, that wrath is coming on you. So the summary of the bad news, again, we, we won't understand the good news if we don't understand the reality of the bad. We were born dead in our sin and therefore sentenced rightfully with a just gavel. God is right to judge any non-believer that way. He's a holy God. It turns out when you're a king, you can make the commands. Amen. So He rightly sentences those apart from him to bear the wrath of God. That's the bad news. Now, the good news, the truth of the gospel, what gives us this morning hope and fervor and life is to be the means by which we are completely separated from the realities of our culture. And what we'll begin to wrestle with is, how then are these truths not changing everything? Because, like Titus says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Just just for a moment, can you think back to the moment When God sought you out, when he offered you his hand, though you didn't deserve it, when you had spat on him and betrayed him, when you had spent months and weeks and years of your life turning your back on him, and yet he offered you mercy and grace. I just got to preach at the funeral of a dear friend on Tuesday. And I was so overwhelmed, even in the face of death, by the kindness of God. What's holding back the church from worship is we still see this God with a grimace on his face. Instead of this morning, the invitation of a king. That says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's loving and he's kind. And the scripture says in verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Come on now. It's unmerited. There is never going to be a point where you have served enough homeless, served in the Heights kids enough, done enough in your neighborhood, been hospitable enough where you could show up to the Lord and say, look. Like i finally done it. And then in that moment, he says, yes, you finally made it. It will never achieve what only Christ could achieve. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Listen, church, what I'm saying is this is what makes worshipers. And, and for those of you that are 20 and under in this body, okay, I, I get a chance in our, our church, uh, in our church gathering, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young adults. And so many things are said against this younger generation. And I would just encourage you sometime to come on a Wednesday night at 8:45, and you will see a young generation who are hungry for God, chasing after the Lord, just like I see in some of you. But I'm telling you right now, what makes you a worshiper, what changes the trajectory of your life, is seeing that it was his mercy, it was his grace by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, verse six, whom he poured out. It's not a drip. It's not a drip, friends. Come on. Whom he poured out on us. What's the word? Richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He has poured it out, lavished it out to make worshipers. And if Titus isn't enough, no problem. Here's Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, his love, not our own, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Romans says it another way, that while we were yet sinners, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, friends. This is the good news. Mark, I've heard it. Some of you are saying it's not it's not it's not enough once a day. It's not enough twice a day or three times a day or four times a day. I start my morning with the gospel. I end my day with the gospel. I am nothing, nothing without the bad news and the good news of King Jesus. So let's summarize it together. Through Christ's atoning, bloody, horrific sacrifice, the crown of thorns thrust into his skull, the The spear sticking his side where blood and water flowed, him taking the whips, his back being completely opened by his flesh through Christ's sacrifice and resurrection, the penalty of sin is paid for. Now the gavel swings again and says, innocent, cleansed, clean. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he's done. And by trusting in Jesus, in Christ alone, not another religion, not another lowercase God, please hear me, not attending a church. By trusting in Jesus, the dead are made alive and given the what? The Holy Spirit. Come on now. It's one thing for him to save and redeem us and free us from the shackles that have held us for our life. It's another thing for him to gift us with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Which then answers our question. How can those in Christ look anything like the culture around them? If this is true, how in the world could those who have been saved from death walk into work and look at anything like those employees that don't know Jesus? How can I walk in a quick trip this morning like I did? Come on now. Any quick trip, fans? I mean, the Lord's up there making those, hot, those chocolate long johns. I mean, it's are so good. Right. Listen, how can I walk up in that quick trip this morning and look anything like those who don't have the Holy Spirit in them? Listen, here's what Galatians 2.20 says. We're going to get to 1 Corinthians, I promise. But, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Let's read it together now. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Stop. Some of you have been around the church body for a long time, and you hear things that you really struggle to believe are true. You hear things, you're like, oh, that's nice. I put that on a poster. You know, I got it on a tat. Yeah, this is so good, Galatians 2.20. But yet, in your heart... The power of Christ is in you. If Google Maps right now had a heat seeker, I mean, this would be like glowing red over this room, over your house, over your car, over your workplace. It's no longer me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. The power of Christ exudes in me. Friends, this is beautiful stuff. Let's read it together. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His motive of putting himself in us is love. So what has happened? How how does American Christianity look anything then like American culture? How have the lines gotten blurred? How have we gotten so dictated by those who have no indwelling Of the Holy Spirit within them. I want to show you there's two different realities. Let's see them now in succession. You have those that are are dead in sin and those that are alive in Christ. That's who's walking around this earth. There's only two options either dead in your trespasses or alive in Christ. You either have a confused identity. And let me step into this for a second. A believer, please stop expecting the non believer to look like a Christian. Please, please, it is not doing the gospel any good for us saying with our mouth that we don't believe in a moralistic gospel, but then expecting the non-believer not to cut us off in traffic, not to throw us the bird, not to talk to us poorly, not to not forgive us. Come on. There's no reason for a non-believer to act like they have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within them. Part of the thing that's turning the world off is the fact that we're saying, oh, we're saved by grace through faith, but you you need to clean up. Listen, I get a chance to disciple right now half the Linwood football team. Okay, we started uh, three seasons ago with seven guys. Uh, tomorrow night I'll have 50, so uh, 50 of the 150 guys on a Monday night seeking the Lord. So many of these dudes are coming to Christ. And, and, and the reason in God's sovereignty they're turning to the Lord now is they grew up hearing, I need to clean up, then I go to Jesus. And, and I'm sharing the gospel with them. No, like it's the, it's the sick that need a doctor. So it turns out you go to Jesus and then he cleans you up, Right. But, but, but what happens is we're, we're like all these people that are confused in their identity, we're like, shame, shame, shame on them. No, they need to hear the gospel. That's who you once were. Because C- now we have a new identity. And it's hard, yes, to remember those days at times, but oh, friends, the grace that can exude for that. You know that a- a- apart from Christ, there's, there's just this reality of hopelessness, aimless. Like, well, like, what am I doing? Why am I even here? But then the believer, infiltrated by the Holy Spirit, we have joy and purpose in the face of all things. Again, I did a funeral on Tuesday. Two days ago, I lost another friend to a car wreck. Horrific realities. I've lost friends to suicide. I've been around so much divorce and cancer and hurt and pain. And why can I have joy today? Because my hope isn't in the here and now. There's a day coming where he's going to wipe away every tear from my eyes, and there's many, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or, or pain, for the former things will pass away. The king's coming back. The king's coming back. We are purposed and joy-filled. Um, those apart from Christ, yes, they're, they're driven by the flesh. We are driven by the Spirit. So, again, if these things are true, what is happening? I'm I'm just going to ask you about your life. How is complacency even possible? How is is lethargy even possible? You you guys have been been around a a pond that hasn't moved in a while. And you know what happens. Like the water, it gets pretty nasty. It gets smelly. I, I don't in Christ know how that's even possible. Oh, I'm just in a dry season. Hold on a second. What you're saying is, that the spirit of Christ in you is, is somehow taking you to a dry season. That's not where the spirit guides us. We have used all kinds of language in the church to cover up our sin, and it's time to take ownership of our wrongdoing and walk in grace. So we together. So we ask again, why does American Christianity look so much like American culture? Five words, only five. From First Thessalonians chapter five. That's why we're given the Holy Spirit, lavished on us, poured out in us, sealed in the Spirit, and we quench it. The Spirit only is taking us in one direction, the glory and honor of the Lord. That's it. Guides us into all truth, Jesus says. And what we do in our sin is we quench that, push that down. We don't want to stick out. We'd rather fit in. We'd rather adhere to the realities of peer pressure than, than ever exude the depth of what's happening inside of us. I believe today's a new day. I believe it's a new opportunity for us. Now, let me say it this way, and here's what I hope the Spirit guides us in today. Those walking in step with the Spirit will radiate Christ, being a shining beacon of light amidst the darkness. That is our reality. You you cannot turn to the Lord and say, hey, can you just turn it down now for a little bit while I walk into work? Oh, the Spirit gives us discernment, but you can't turn down the light. We can't turn down the love. God is who he is, and he is inside of us. It's our flesh that quenches it. And so if you've ever been like, man, how do, I, how do I navigate just being so different? I look at your brothers and sisters, 5,500 of which last year will be killed because of their faith. I look at the 10 of 11 apostles who were killed because of their faith. Look at your king who was executed because of his trust in his father. There's a long list that has gone before you of people saying no matter what the cost he is worthy of worship. My life isn't my own. I was bought at a price. So, uh, my brother Corey asked me to answer this question. Now we will get into 1 Corinthians after that long interlude. Uh, the question that he asked me to challenge us in is just, how can a Christian engage in the culture without being in sin? I think we've, I think we've laid a foundation now let's look at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which will give us a ton of help. So open your Bibles or your phones or your scrolls. Let's look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's writing to a church that's a hot mess. ton of contention, a lot of questions, a lot of things happening. Uh, there's a lot of broken relationships in the church in Corinth, um, as I'm sure the reason why this... Uh, this um, series is titled The Way It Is. They're, they're wrestling with a lot of things, and so Paul's addressing these things. So here we go, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So instantaneously, what Paul's doing is he's taking us back to the history of the Israelites. Or for those that are unaware, that the Israelites uh, spent 400-plus years in Egyptian slavery, bound up, uh, many generations were killed under that regime of slavery. Uh, all of a sudden then, the people's cry reaches in their desperation God's ear. God sends Moses, raises them up, and then he, he releases them from the hands of Pharaoh. He protects them with a cloud by day, which if you've been in Arizona in the summer or the ancient Near East in the summer, uh, it's, it's, it's not balmy, okay? And so he protects them and guides them with a cloud by day, covering the sun and then at night a beacon of fire. A cloud of smoke that guides and directs them. And, and what Paul is saying here is, I, l- listen, let's, let's think back. Let's remember. And then he says in verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. God provided for them. He, he gave them manna. Okay, maybe today's manna would be like Texas Roadhouse Rolls or something. But, but then he, 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 provided, you know, he provided manna for them. Anyone else just love bread? I mean, I'm just, Okay. Like, some people are on the no-carb. I'm on, I'm on an only-carb. Like, that's all, I'm only carbs, okay? Uh, so so, so God, God provided for his people. Like he, he gave them a manna, the same spiritual fruit, and, and he provided water. Uh, they were complaining, this water is bitter, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the, the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is just Paul's way of saying everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Just, just real quick, this is an aside. Uh, for those that are struggling to read the word, instead of, of viewing God's word as what, this, uh, what does this say to my life in the, in the right here and right now, just start with what does this tell me about God? When you read the word to be a worshiper and not, and not to gain philosophy, your whole perspective changes. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying Jesus is throughout the whole of the scripture, again, which makes us worshipers. Now, verse five is helpful. Here we go. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not, what? Pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Uh, if, you do the, if you do the math, uh, the time that it would have taken the Israelites to go from the other side of the sea to the promised land, it would have taken them a month or less. Uh, it ended up taking them 40 years, of which only two even survived, Caleb and Joshua. That's it. All the rest of the probable two million taken out, judged, disciplined, killed because of their sin. So I just want to show you what sin does. Like their sin in the wilderness, they're getting on the other side and looking at God saying, what are you doing to us out here? We'd be better off in Egypt. It brings upon them a tremendous amount of hurt, which is why then Paul says this in verse six. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire, not even pursue evil, but desire. These things happen so that we might not desire evil as they do. Now, uh, I had amazing, um, amazing grandparents, especially on uh, one of my uh, sides. My dad's uh, dad was just an incredible man, incredible godly man. He was my mentor. And, and anytime he would sit me down, And he was a World War II vet, and I mean, he just, when he spoke, I just hung on every, every word that came from his mouth. There's so much to learn from those that have experienced much. So are we ready to learn a little bit? You see, God's word is a weapon against the pain that comes from sin. Uh, Again, and I'll just speak to the, the young people here. Uh, it's so easy to think that, that you that you understand the fullness of the world. It's so easy to think that, that your perspective is is wide and expansive. Uh, but let me remind you, even even as now a twenty three year old man like I am, all right, like my that was too too much laughter on that. Um, <laughs> uh, is God's ways are higher than ours? And, and those that are disciple makers and your parents, and those that have lived, like there's a, there's a different kind of perspective. And what happens with God's word is it becomes a weapon to save us from pain. God is so kind that He would say, Forgive. Uh, how much pain has been wrought upon your life out of the lack of, of forgiveness? I'm asking. God is so kind to say, pray for those who persecute you. How much pain has been brought by growing a judgmental spirit against those who wrong you. God is so kind to teach on our identity and sexual identity to guard and protect the pain that comes from going against his plan. Again, God is is taught in our culture and perceived as someone that's holding out instead of a kind, merciful father that's saying, son and daughter, Listen, I love you enough to say these things. So, are we ready to learn then? Are we ready to learn from these examples? Okay, God has given it to us. Paul is writing about it. So how can we use the word today as a weapon to save us from pain? The years of pain that could have been saved in your life. Hold on, one more thing. The simple life is just, yes, Lord. Seriously, like, when we look at the scripture Think of how simple our life would be if it was just, yes, Lord. I don't need to pray about it. I mean, I'll pray for strength to follow it, but I don't need to pray what your will is. It's right here. This is his voice. It's living and active. Oh, you know, yeah, Mark, I'm just praying about, you know, praying about whether I should be an ambassador for Christ. Hold on, what? What? The scripture says that in our new identity, we are ambassadors. Being an ambassador isn't something we do. It's who we are. You don't need to pray about nothing. Like, like, yes, you need to pray that God will give you the strength, but you are an ambassador. Life would be so simple if we just said, yes, Lord. One more analogy. Um, so if, I, I like thinking about ancient rulers sometimes. It's helpful to understand power. If, uh, if Xerxes came into this room right now and he was like, all right, who's the leader here, you know, and he had all the soldiers and they, they had all their things their silver shiny weapons and oh yeah Cory he's the leader you know and we were all kind of scared like he's he's and if Xerxes came up and said all right man i want you to do 300 jumping jacks and Cory's like well i mean and you know again like all you can hear the clanging of the swords i mean the implication is if he doesn't do them he dies i'm going to go ahead and guess Cory does them like he does 300 real good ones you know what i mean like, I mean, perfect form. And he's a fit man, like perfect form. You know, we're all cheering him on. We start slow clapping, right? That's how we would submit to fleshly leaders. Then when a loving, gracious, merciful king says, go and make disciples, we're like, yeah, I'll think about it. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, yeah, I'll process that, God. I'm an internal processor, you know, so I just, I, I just, I, I need some time. We put more bank on fleshly authority than we do the risen, reigning, authoritative king of the universe is what I'm saying. So so now verse seven, okay. Do not be, Paul says, idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They started meandering around the wilderness. Turns out there was quite a bit of darkness out there. And so the people then began to acquiesce with the people that were around them. And he's saying, don't, don't be like them. Don't be like adulterers. Then he says in verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. You can go back through this whole story and see all these examples. There's another example in verse nine and verse 10. He, he's saying, learn from their mistakes. There is so much more in what God is doing. We cannot indulge in these things. And, and what he's saying in summary is that the Israelites, they were released and they abused their freedom, living like the darkness around them. Well, we went through earlier and and said that we've been released from something far greater. 400 years of Egyptian slavery, that's a big deal. Uh, An entire lifetime of sin and death, much, 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 much larger. We've been freed from that. So the question is, what are you doing with that freedom? Are you abusing that or is that freedom making you a worshipper? So how then can we learn from this example today? We're going to only look at one more verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 14 where Paul summarizes his entire challenge when he says this in verse 14. Therefore my beloved, what's the word? Flee, Flee. Uh, It turns out, I think that our greatest struggle is running from sin. Uh, We do a really good job at at, at shifting this passage. I think we read it as, therefore, my beloved, flirt with idolatry. I mean, not full-fledged in, just just kind of flirt with it. We try to set up uh, our kids for dating success. And uh, we have a 17-year-old daughter named Avery. Uh, there was only one boy that pursued her, and he found out that was a mistake. And then we have, uh, uh, and, and listen, the reason why it was a mistake is because uh, we, we've laid a foundation in our home. Uh, hey, listen, you can date at any age. It's just the person that you're dating, they need to have a conversation with us. Well, that ups the age real quick, you know, because my younger kids, he's like, well, you know, she's not gonna wanna have a conversation with you. Exactly. When she's mature enough, and in Christ enough, then, then maybe. Anyway, so uh, only one boy that has pursued um, my daughter. My two sons, we've had to do a bit of training, 14 and 13, freshman and eighth grader. And, and one of the ways we've, we've taught and trained them is how to, how to flee from flirting. Uh, we've talked a ton about how flirting just, man, it grabs the identity of a girl and twists it all up. And so we've taught them, instead of using words like, uh, she's hot, or man, she's smoking fine, or, you know, some of these things, what we've taught them to say is, listen, when you see a beautiful girl, just say, the Lord's done a good work in her, you know? And and so even from a young age, it's been really, really helpful. So me and my boys, will be out in public, and, and they'll come up to me, and they'll be like, Dad, God's really done a good work in her. And I'm like, okay. Like, that's, you know? Like, praise be to God. You know what I'm saying? Like I, that's, um, But you, you, you guys know the difference between fleeing and flirting. It's... it's and, and, and some of you, unfortunately, have gotten too accustomed to flirting in the workplace. Married but flirting. Too accustomed to batting the eye. You, you know what flirting is. It's getting as close as we possibly can so that in, in our minds we can, we can, like, get there in our imagination without having to go there. That, that we can still uh, somehow, part, you know, have what we have without losing it, but get some of the feeling that, that coddles our insecurity from flirting. So, what the scripture says is flee from idolatry, not flirt with it. So, what I want to do is just help us understand this. Here's some ways that we flirt with idolatry. I just have time for three, though my initial list was ten. Here we go. First. By believing, as long as we didn't build it, we're innocent. I mean, I didn't build the idol. I'm I'm here around it, but I didn't build that youth sports league. I didn't, I didn't, you know, tell them when to calendar all their practices and games. But, I mean, I I want my kid to be Babe Ruth. And, you know, they're all saying that if I don't have six practices a week and three games, including Sunday mornings, and on and on and on, if I don't do all that, that I'm not setting my kid up for success. I, I mean, I didn't build it, so i I got to be innocent and just going going with the the understanding of this youth sports league, just as one example, and I'm not saying that every creator of a youth sports league in the here and now is a son of the devil. I'm just saying some of them are. And instead of the body of Christ rising up, infiltrated by the Holy Spirit, saying, you're not gonna dictate our schedule. Whether my son is Babe Ruth and, and my daughter goes on to be XYZ, like we're gonna focus in our home on gospel identity. We're going to focus on, in our home on what it means to submit to the Lord, not to the culture. But it's so easy for us as parents, as leaders, as grandparents, as church leaders, just to say, well, I mean, how are we going to fight up against this machine? That's what we did in our house. We fought. We're like, absolutely not. We're, well, I mean, look at, look at Maddox and all of his potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son is, four, is 13 years old, eighth grader. Okay? He, he plays rec league baseball. Okay, this fall he batted 1,000, literally 1,000. Okay, he was 22 for 22, batted 1,000. And, and everyone's like, oh man, like Maddox is gonna be the next great. I'm like, I, I, yeah, I'd rather his heart be focused on Christ. I don't, like baseball, okay. So can I tell you a really cool story? And this is not recorded so I can do this, I, or is it recorded? Anyway, so, so QB1 of Lindenwood, QB1 of Lindenwood, Okay. He's come to Christ in the last, uh, uh, QB1 means first-string quarterback. He's come to Christ in the last 10 months. Last Saturday at the game, he goes down with a massive knee injury, and I'm seeing him, like, beat the ground. I'm like, oh, my goodness. They put him on a cart, go down to the locker room. It's just me and the trainer that are there, so I have to carry him. This is a guy I've discipled. I have to carry him in my arms into the locker room to get an x-ray. And the whole time, he's smiling. And I was like, cool, I mean, he's, you know, his kneecap is literally like displaced, okay, and he's smiling, and I was like, Cole, why are you smiling? I just went and visited him yesterday. Why are you smiling? He's like, Mark, I'm good. Like, my identity isn't in football, brother. This is a guy who is a brand new believer, 10 months old, who it, literally his career could be over, and he's saying, I'm good. I mean, this hurts, and yeah, I want to be, be there for my, my teammates, but my identity is in Christ. Yes! I didn't build it. I mean, come on. Our family can just kind of do the thing. When will the Spirit of God start being submitted to in our homes? And you apply that as you will. I'm not saying there's a boom, boom, boom. I'm just saying submit to the Spirit's direction, not the culture. All right, we got to keep going. Number two, how do we flirt with it? By externally condemning things while internally craving it. Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, man, we're we're totally against all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sexual morality. mm No, nowhere near. And then internally, behind closed doors, in dark caverns, the same people that cheer and applaud are some of the same people who get as close as possible at work. As close as possible in culture. As close as possible. When when will the depths of our heart, which God already sees, how crazy is it that we're fully known and fully loved? When will the depths of our heart truly be this, I don't need to hide anymore in culture because I'm already fully known and fully loved in Christ. So I'm I'm just saying, friends, there has to be a match between what's coming out externally and what's happening internally, but that's how we flirt. Uh, Secondly, and I'll hang here for just a moment Uh, We flirt with idolatry by utilizing people as the standard versus God's word. This is the biggest way the church has condemned the church is we've made each other the standard. So we're like, oh, that's what passion looks like. Oh, that's what pursuing the Lord looks like. Oh, we can be helpful in that way. God can use us as disciple makers. He does use us as disciple makers. But the standard is him, holy, set apart, perfect. It's why we need him. If we become the standard, then we teach people they need the church and not the king. Then we teach our kids, no, you need to go to church. What I want my kids to know is I desperately need Jesus. And then when I come to Christ, it turns out he provides biblical fellowship and community and the spirit to guide and direct what would your kids say? Oh, but I better go to church. I better... Oh, would they see you, dad and mom, on your face in your house, desperate for a holy God? Would they know for sure by the evidence of your life that you need Jesus more than anything else? When people become the standard, we flirt with idolatry. God's word escalates it. It feels impossible, which is the whole reality of what happens in the gospel as it points us to the Lord. He says, Flee. Now one more note on verse 14. He doesn't say, as it pertains to engaging the culture, flee from those who are dead in their idolatry. You see that? Uh, The the stats right now are 3.5 or so billion people in the world have literally no access to the gospel. I'm asking a question not out of judgment, but as assessment, do you care? 3.5 billion we have a class right now in our church body called Mission with God. This past week, 90 gathered. Our goal is to send uh, 50 missionaries by 2030 to unreached people groups. And I was sitting in this room full, and we just had this holy moment where I had the dude raise his hand. He's like, I, just, I'm, I feel led right now. Like, I need, to, I need to move my entire family. I need to start learning Arabic. And it's just time to care about the lost. And okay, from the, from the far corners of the globe, let's just talk about your neighbor, Like, does the reality of their lostness, does it bring tears to your eyes? Does it move you? Friends, the scripture doesn't say flee from those who are dead in their idolatry. They need to hear the gospel, friends. So I want to move us just as we close into a time of assessment. Are there aspects of your life that are driven by idolatry and not the spirit? I just want to walk through a few. Have you made comfort an idol? Have you started to believe that you living this padded, beautiful, American dream, two and a half kids, white picket fence, and a golden retriever or two, have you made that the essence of your purpose? If if we could just be more comfortable, if we could just have more resources, if we, we, one more bedroom, another half bath. I'm, I'm just asking, where in the scripture would that be supported? Where? Just tell me. Let's not, talk about, let's not talk about American Christianity. I'm talking about the word. Where would the word support a comfort idol? Jesus says, when we're weary, we go to him. We find rest in him. We lay down our comforts. As Stephen is being stoned in Acts 7, was he like, what, like can we make the stones lighter? Oh, for the body of Christ, for you, to be purged of any pursuit of American kind of comfort so that you would learn more on how to rest in the beauty of Christ. Why do you need Christ if you're more comfortable in the here and now? It's in our discomfort that we're like, please come back. Right. Do you have a comfort idol? What about entertainment? Man, I just, I really love binge watching on Netflix. B- binge watching. Binge watching. How in the world did this even become a possibility for spirit-indwelt people? I'll tell you how. It's when we started believing that me time was such a thing. Again, biblically, where would that be supported? Me time. Me focused time. Instead, there's so much scripture, friends, about denial of self, giving up of self, releasing self. Does that mean we don't need rest? Absolutely not. Does that mean you shouldn't go on a vacation? Absolutely not. Just let your vacation be a means of worship. It's never about indulgence. It's never about a focus of you. Again, in our mind, we think listen, I've worked hard. I've done all these things. I struggle with this week in and week out. I'll struggle with it today. Oh man, just preach a couple sermons. We've got a lot of family tonight, done a couple funerals this week. You know what? I just need some, some me time. This afternoon, instead of God, you are so worthy of worship. Thank you for the opportunity to serve in your kingdom. You see the difference. One is idolatrous, one is self-indulgent. What about purpose? I have a, again. We minister to hundreds of college students almost every week. Hey, Mark, can you pray that God will show me what His purpose is for my life? I'm like, no problem, and I go back and I grab my my Bible. And I just start showing them piece by piece what their purpose is. And I'm like, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm like talking about where I go to school. I'm like, hold on. You're putting the specifics ahead of the general. Like, like look at how beautiful his purpose is for you. Like, the fact that he would even let you be his son or his daughter, what a gift and a grace. But some of us, we, we've made our dreams, our timeline. Hey, God, like, why couldn't we get pregnant? What's your problem? He got it. Like I thought she was. I thought she was totally into me, and I was going to propose six months from now. And then, like she just walked away. Like God, what happened? Or, or I had this whole plan of how this career was going to flesh out and how I was going to provide for my family. And then we were left jobless. What happens when those things occur? When it's an idol, we've placed all of our trust in something that was temporal. Versus the chance to worship a God who's eternal. And finally, I'm just asking, are relationships an idol for you? All right, all right God, I just want, like, once, once these relationships completely supply for me, or, or once this one relationship that hurt me, once, once they finally get theirs, or, or, or once the, you know this depiction of what I finally wanted in marriage, like once he finally becomes the, the godly leader that, that I want him to be, you can't do that work. Only Christ can beg Christ to do that work. It's a difference between idolatrous fleeing and flirting, friends. I'm just asking you to assess. So what happens then is you fill American Christianity with people who have lowered the standard, not submitting to the spirit of God, quenching the spirit, And now we know why the world looks in and says, you people, you talk about hope all the time, but you sure seem hopeless. You talk about like joy, eternal joy all the time, but it sure seems like in the face of hardship, you're the first to run away from the Lord. There's a different kind of opportunity for us. So how can a Christian engage in culture without being in sin? Again, this conversation is like a 10-week sermon series. But let's summarize it with this. We flee idolatry. We love those entrenched in idolatry, caring about our neighbor, passionately zealous for the lost on our street, intentional submission to the Holy Spirit with those on our team and on our campus and in our high schools. Like pouring out, God, give me your heart for them. Walking down your school hallways with eyes filled with tears, pleading for God to move, intentionally loving them while walking in step with the Spirit. Yes, yes, Lord, I'm in, whatever. Imagine if that was the result today. A whole bunch of people that just said, yes, Lord, we're in. Like, we'll go wherever, we'll do whatever, we'll say whatever. We're going to burn the idols like you had Moses burn it down. They're done. We're not submitting to this culture anymore. We're just going to stay in step with your spirit. We, we embrace the fact that we're going to stick out. Some would say like a sore thumb or others, or others would say like a beacon of light. So that opportunity lays in front of us, right? It lays in front of you. Is it yes, Lord? Or is it still, you know what? No, I can be one foot in and one foot out. Let's stand together, come on. So in the recognition of the reality of idolatry in your heart, I just want to remind you of the beauty of what the cross has accomplished. The scripture says that that he's loving and kind. And today is offering a way for you to embrace the fullness of repentance. Years and years, months and months, weeks and weeks maybe of just submitting. Trying to engage culture by quenching the spirit where all of a sudden now the resurgence of the sealed Holy Spirit is moving mightily. And there's this new sense of, my goodness, how have I negated the living and active king? How have I succumbed so quickly to look like everyone else? Repentance and the power of the cross is yours. Grace can rain down on this place right now, amen? Grace is ours. so we're gonna share in this meal of communion and listen, I've taken this meal hundreds and hundreds of times, but there's been certain times where the sacrifice of Christ, the blood shed, has left me both, yes, with godly grief over my sin, but hope, hope in his return, So friends, we can flee idolatry not because we're strong enough but because it's no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in us. So let's come to the table and remember Christ.